Am I on now? There I am. Check, check. Make it out to Zeke. Check, check. <laughs> she got that one over there. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm trying a different mic because I broke my other one. So it's like I don't know when I'm on or not. So um, having started the uh, the chapter 11 of of Hebrews last week, <clears throat> the writer has gotten the reader on the subject of, of faith. It, it started a while back um, in chapter 10. He, he, he kind of switched gears there. And, and, and this is where the writer wanted to bring these readers to, to live a life of faith. Um, it, it's the last part of this book. And, and all along, this is where... He wanted to really solidify what he had been teaching them throughout this whole book. To live a life of faith. Even though these Hebrew believers had already experienced saving faith, he wanted them now to walk in that faith. They, they, they had received that, that, that measure of faith to where they can believe, but now it was a matter of continuing on. What, what, what had happened is they had received it, they started walking, and yet there was a point in time where they began to draw back, and that's why he was giving them these warnings of being careful not to drop back. What he was telling them, in essence, was that you need to, you should be active in your faith. That, that there has to be a consistent walk and a, a steadiness about it that, that you wouldn't be just, just being idle in faith. This is what I mean. To be active means to be moving. To be active means that, that you're not standing still. You don't have time to just be idle. And it's important because, again, you, get, you, you understand about, okay, I'm accepting God by faith. I have never seen Him or touched Him, but I'm accepting God by faith. And what do I do with that now? It needs to be active. There, there's no time to just to come to Him and then just sit there and meander or do nothing with this faith. It's an active kind of faith. It's something that you're supposed to move in. And when I say that they, they were to be consistent and steady, this means that they weren't wavering back and forth from, from one doctrine to another. They were to stay steady. They weren't supposed to be going up and down in their faith. It was supposed to be consistent. And I think this is where oftentimes, as believers, we, we come to a point of accepting Christ, and we've put our faith in Him, but all of a sudden our faith, goes along with our emotions. And when we feel down, we feel like, oh, I lost my faith. And when we feel up, it's like, man, we're so stoked about Jesus, man. We're just, man, nothing can bring me down. And so your faith goes up and down like this, and yet that's not what our faith is supposed to be. It's not supposed to go along with our emotions because our faith is to stay steady. And when we're down, our faith should not 
should not change. And when we're up, it still shouldn't change. Because we have these highs in our lives that we feel like nothing can touch us. And yet when all of a sudden something else goes wrong, man, we just like plummet, you know, all the way down. It's like, that's not what our faith is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be just kind of steady. No matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences, our belief in God should be just a straight, even keel kind of thing. It's interesting because years ago, um, in talking to my son, when he first moved down the hill and he was going to a, a church down there, he would call me and he would have these ups and downs in his life. And I would try to remind him about the steadiness. And, and, and there was times that he was just so hyped, so excited about what God was doing. And then a few days later, he's calling me and it's like, oh, dad, blah, blah, blah. It's like, son, son, hold on. God doesn't move. He stays the same. He never changes. And our faith should be right there. And, it, and, and again, I mean, we still all go through those times. But it's almost like if, if we can understand that our faith is different from our emotions, <laughs> that, that there should be the steadiness. And, and even when we're up and then we're down, you know, and sometimes we kind of just hover around that line right there and we're like doing really good. And it's just like, yeah, this is what it's supposed to look like. And then when we fall, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I need to realize that God didn't change. My emotions did. And I think when we can capture that as believers, then we're going to walk a more consistent and steady life in him. We're going to walk in that kind of faith and not let our emotions dictate what our faith should look like. You guys understand that? Is it coming across? No matter what the consequences or the circumstances may, may be. Last week we, 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 we saw that faith is a constant obedience of God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. And that, that's kind of what our faith, our trust should look like right there. No matter what happens in our, in our lives because God has already laid the foundation. He's already laid it. He, he, he's already given us that substance. He's already given us the proof, the evidence. Because of what or who he has revealed, Jesus Christ. It, it all revolves around Jesus Christ. Because of him, then we have the, 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 the foundation and we have the proof of what God has said is true. These believers... In Hebrews, we're already living what the Old Testament saints were looking for afar off. They were experiencing it. The Old Testament believers had died in faith, it says, not having received the promises of yet. God had given them all, these believers here, that measure of faith to believe in whom he had sent. And now, he is encouraging them to walk in that faith, and not to stand still, and not to drop back, but to move forward continually. The Old Testament saints, it told us last week, had obtained a good testimony in waiting for what they had never received. They had that good testimony of, of their steadfastness of looking forward. 
because Jesus was still afar off to many of them. How much more of a good testimony should the Hebrew believers that we're reading about here, how much more should they have obtained what they, because they had already received, how much more should they have attained a better testimony? Having received what God had revealed to them through Jesus. If the Old Testament saints pleased God because of their faith, looking forward, looking ahead, how much more were the Hebrew believers to please God? Since Jesus had lived, died, resurrected and ascended all in that first century that they all lived in. He wasn't that far away. How much more should they have pleased God? And how much more should we please God as believers today? How much more should we please God in our faith since God has spoken to us through His Son and God has given us His complete word to trust in? Because the, these believers that we're reading about, they didn't have all of this complete word like you and I have. How much more should we be pleasing God in that sense that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses of all those who have gone before us? And yet we have the word of God complete and he speaks loud. Some of them that we've looked at and are going to look at, some were looking ahead. Some were living it, like these believers here. And we have the privilege, believers today, of looking back on it because He has been faithful. He has given us His Word. We have history behind us to understand that He is faithful. And so what the writer is going to do throughout this chapter here is give us a glimpse of what the Old Testament saints look forward to and their faith their faith, that they pleased God. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the world were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered, a more, offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of this gift, of his gifts. And through it, he, being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch, was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir 
of the righteousness which is according of faith, to faith. In verse 4, as he starts off, he says, By faith, Abel, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It's interesting that the writer doesn't start off with Adam, but he starts off with his son. And as I was looking at this and, and, and just kind of trying to grasp, how come he didn't go all the way to the beginning? How come he started with his son? And I thought, well, it's understandable because Adam didn't have or didn't need faith to please God. Because it tells us that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, it tells us in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. He didn't have to know faith or see faith or understand faith because Adam, there was, with Adam, there was nothing to hope for. The, the, the substance and the evidence was right there. He's he seen it. He heard it somehow. He didn't need that kind of faith that you and I need. God was right there in the garden with him, talking to him, ministering to him. And so he didn't need faith because God was in his midst. And they talked to him. But after the fall, and God still in their midst, and that's interesting because God knew that they had fallen, and yet God still came to them to talk to them even in the garden. But after the fall, God revealed to them what faith would look like. He revealed to them what it would take for them to, to come before him after this. What God revealed to Adam was passed down to his sons. And somehow, one of them, Abel, understood it, and Cain didn't. Or should I say, Abel accepted what was revealed to Adam, but Cain somehow didn't. He didn't accept what God required, what was revealed to Adam. So Abel is the first that is mentioned here by the writer that experienced faith. The kind of faith that would please God. And the way it was, it was through worship. He would experience great, or, or faith by the way he worshipped God. It tells us in Genesis chapter 4. I'm not going to be turning to Genesis because there's a lot of references to Genesis. So you can write them down or start the book of Genesis and start reading. Because we're going to be covering a lot of that. But it tells us in Genesis chapter 4 that Abel was a sheep herder. And that his older brother Cain was the tiller of of the ground. He was a farmer. So you have the sheep herder and you have the, 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 the farmer here. When it came time to worship God, and I don't know exactly how they knew when they were supposed to go worship God or how they went to go worship God, but somehow they knew that when this time came, they were to come before Him to worship. And they understood somehow that they were to bring an offering to God. Both of them knew that. 
But Abel offered or brought an offering to God that was better and more acceptable to God. It tells us that it was a a more excellent sacrifice than that of his brother. It's interesting because sometimes when, when, when you read stuff like that, you're going, well, wait a minute. Why was his better than his? And sometimes you, you kind of wonder, it's like, why would God do that? Why would, why would God not accept whatever they brought? You see, when, when, when they came to worship, Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. Being a, a, a sheep herder, he, he offered the firstborn of his flock. And, and Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And again, you might think like, well, well he, was a, he was a farmer. He brought him a sacrifice. Shouldn't that be good enough? <laughs> but note that even with, with Cain's sacrifice, it doesn't tell us that he brought the first fruit of what he produced. It doesn't tell us that he brought the best of the fruit that he produced. It just says that he brought some fruit and offered it to God. And in that story, it tells us that that the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Hmm. There was something that, 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 that happens there that God says, this one I accept, that one I don't. What had been revealed to Adam was when they fell, the only thing at that time that could cover their sin to show them that they had fallen, that they, had, they were now sinners, was blood. That was the only thing that would suffice to cover their sin. God would have to kill an innocent animal to cover them, because when they fell, and you know the story, or you might know the story, when they fell, they decided that they had to cover their nakedness, their shame. And it says that they they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. Now, I don't know if you've been around fig trees in your life, but they're pretty big, big leaves, and they could cover quite a bit. But if you've also been around these fig leaves, you know that there's a smooth side and there's a rough side to it. And I could guarantee you, because they felt guilty for their sin, they put the rough side up against their skin. So they could like, suffer a little bit. And I'm sure when God saw that, he goes, ooh, geez. Here, let me kill an animal for you. Let me give you some sheepskins to put on instead. And so God killed an innocent animal for their sin. And more than likely, it was probably a lamb to cover them up, to cover up their shame and their nakedness. The blood of an innocent lamb would be the requirement to confess their sins and thus by faith, accepting forgiveness from God. And so here we have Abel who brought blood as an offering. That is what was required of God. Bring blood. Not from your own, what you have produced or your, your, what, what you can make. Bring something that's innocent. 
You see, Abel, he brought, he brought blood, thus confessing that he himself was a sinner and he needed forgiveness. And he fulfilled the requirement by God because that is what God had revealed to his father, Adam. That blood would be required. And so Abel did it God's way. And because he did it God's way, he was obedient to what God required. Cain, on the other hand, brought a bloodless sacrifice. Knowing all the while what God had required. Because it had been revealed to his father. And I'm sure Adam did not neglect to let them know what, it, what was required. Yet he did it his own way. Thus being disobedient in the process. That's why God rejected his and accepted Abel's. Because Cain came in his own doing with his own hands. In what he had produced. Cain would be the architect of false religion. He would be the, 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 the mastermind of, of those who would come doing it their own way, trying to reach God their own way. Showing man that you can trust in yourself instead of trusting what God has required. Bringing to God the work of your own hand. And thus he was rejected. Because he says, this is good enough. God God says, that's not what I require. I require blood. Well, take it or leave it. Cain was wanting to stand before God in his religion, and he was rejected. Because there was no faith involved. Whereas Abel, by faith, stood before God righteous because he had a good testimony, it says. He, he, he obtained a good witness that he was righteous. Why? Because he stood right standing with God because there was blood involved. He understood that by faith, I am being forgiven right now because of the blood. The fact that he, being dead, still speaks, proclaims to the generations and to the ages that forgiveness of sin, the only way you could have forgiveness of sin is through the blood. <laughs> the only way. You cannot come by your own doing and say, Lord, look at what I've done. You have to forgive me. It's like, no, it's only by the blood. That's the only way. And so because of that, he still speaks, it says. Abel's faith cost him his life. It cost him. It cost him everything. Because he was being obedient to the Lord. He, he is the first martyr of our faith. His blood speaks of that. But also the blood of the sacrifice speaks It speaks as well because it looked forward to the blood 
of Jesus that would cover sin. Which speaks better things of that of Abel, it tells us in, in, in Hebrews 12, 24. That the blood of Jesus is better than that of Abel. Even though his still speaks out, the blood of Christ speaks louder because it's better. Because that one cleanses all mankind. In verse 5 it says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, it was it, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The Amplified reads it this way Because of faith, Enoch was caught up and transferred to heaven, so that he did not have a glimpse of death. And he was not found because God had translated him. For even before he was taken to heaven, he received testimony still on record that he had pleased and was that he had pleased and been satisfactory to God. It, it is said of, of Enoch in Galatians, or Galatians in, in Genesis five twenty four, and Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. What an amazing verse. What an amazing statement. That this man, Enoch, walked with God and he was not because God took him. Like, what? How is that possible? It sounds crazy. That one moment he is walking and all of a sudden he is not. I don't know what that looks like, but his, his body wasn't even found. I don't know if his clothes fell off and his clothes stayed there, or he was just taken all together. But it says that Enoch walked with God and he was not. And as I thought about that and kind of being like, whoa, that's amazing. I was reminded of the rapture. Because that's what's going to happen to where you are walking with God and then you are not. And it happens like that, that quick. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> well, we might think, well, it could happen to one man, but to a whole church, to a whole you know, people, it's like, no, God is powerful enough to do that. E Enoch didn't have the faith to be caught up, to be transferred or, or transformed. He didn't have that faith of saying, man, if I just walk close to God, one of these days, He's just going to catch me up. He's just going to snatch me out violently. He, he, he didn't have that kind of faith. Not like us. You know, we, we, we think like, man, if I just like pray and get closer to God, as soon as the rapture comes, I'm out of here, man. We're gone. See, we think that because we know about the rapture. I don't think he had the faith enough to to think that because it had never happened before. To no one else was it, was it said that they walked with God and then they were not. I think it took him by surprise. <laughs> All of a sudden he's in heaven it's like, hey, guess I'm not on earth anymore. It had never happened before. So that, that was nothing to look forward to. He just walked. He, he just had this, this, this life of faith and he walked it the best way he knew how. And somehow God looked at it and said, Man, oh man, you are so close to me right now. Why don't you just come on up? And it happened that quick. 
Because there was nothing that indicated that that would be happening. But it happened that quick to him. God just took him. The interesting thing about this is that Enoch lived in a very, very wicked time. Right before the flood. Well, probably a few hundred years before the flood. But then again, people were living to be 900 years old at that time too. But he lived in a very wicked time. And it was interesting as I'm looking at this going, wait a minute. The world was not affecting him. Somehow he was desirous to walk with God, so much so that God just snatched him out. And even though he was living in a wicked time, in a wicked world, it wasn't, it wasn't penetrating his life somehow. He, he desired to just be close to God and continue to walk with God. I find it interesting that, that one of his sons that he begat or begot, that he had, ended up being the oldest man that ever lived, Methuselah. That was his son. He, he ended up dying at age 969 years old. Bet you he thought, oh man, to be 800 again. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> sometimes we feel old, you know. It's like, yeah, they were living to be in, in their 900s. And it's interesting because chapter 5 of Genesis gives us this whole genealogy of from, from Seth to, 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 to Lachem. Seth would have been the other son of, of, of Adam. And Lachem was, was the father of Noah. And in that, that span of all these names that are being named, and they lived to be this long, and they lived to be, but they all died. Even if they lived to be 969 years old, guess what? They still died. And in the midst of all that dying in that chapter, you have one man, Enoch, who walked with God and was not. Because he had a testimony that he pleased God. He lived. He didn't taste death. It's interesting because there's only two guys in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, who did not taste death. They were just taken. Well, he was just snatched up. Elijah was in a, in a chariot of fire that you could see as he left, but Enoch was just like taken like that. And they are the only two recorded in the scriptures that did not see death. But it's interesting because in the book of Revelation, there's, there's a portion where um, two witnesses come and they show up. And most commentators believe that it is Moses and Elijah. But there are some commentators who say, no, it's Enoch. Because they get killed in the Great Tribulation. Even though they escaped death the first time, maybe they're going to have to see death later on. I don't know exactly who it's going to be, but I just thought I'd throw that out. The translation of Enoch here is a beautiful picture again of the rapture of the church. That one minute they were, he was just walking and the next he was gone. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed that quick. That's the promise that we have. And just like it happened to Enoch, God could do it to, to, to his people. 
anytime he wants. It's interesting because Abel died a brutal, violent death at the hand of his brother, at the hands of his brother. Because of his faith, he died. Whereas Enoch didn't even taste death because of his faith. And it just kind of goes to show you that that God works differently in people's lives because of their faith. I think sometimes we're going, well, why do they have to go through these things? And why do, do they not have to go through certain things? I don't know. Except that the first two examples that we have about faith, one of them gets murdered because of it, and the other one doesn't even see faith. We're going to skip verse 6 and, and touch on it at the end of the at the end of the study, but verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is to faith. Noah Noah's faith was one of waiting and working. It was different than the other two. One, again, showed his faith, and and I don't know what the time frame was, but he got killed for it. The other one didn't even see it coming as he walked by faith and was snatched out of the way. Whereas Noah here was more about waiting and working, which means that he worked even while he waited. He didn't just stand around and do nothing as he waited. The Bible tells us in in Genesis 6, 3, that the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, most commentators believe that the 120 years here was the drop-dead date that God would bring his judgment. That when he said that, that that he would give man 120 years to repent of the wickedness that they were into. In Genesis 6, 13 and 14, God warned uh, Noah that he was going to destroy the earth and that he needed to get to work building the ark. And it says in 13 and 14 of chapter 6, "And, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This this warning moved Noah to action. Not, not seeing any kind of catastrophe in the near future, but yet God warning him that I'm going to destroy the earth. He moved on that. He acted on that. God instructed him to make an ark. <laughs> and most believe that before the flood, it had never rained before. Most believe that that there was some kind of like a greenhouse effect over the earth that it never really rained and there was always this lush vegetation kind of 
environment that people lived to be 900 years old. That animals lived a lot longer. That's why we see these big old animals that we call dinosaurs and stuff. I'm thinking, because I was thinking about that, I'm going, man, give a, a Gila monster like 900 years to live. I mean, how big can they get in the right environment? Get a horny toad growing pretty big. It's like, man, it's going to look pretty, pretty gnarly in the right environment. It's like, oh, all this blood coming out of their eyes. See, my first question would have been, when God said that, what's an ark? What what, what is that? And my second question would have been, and you want it how big? I don't think he would have questioned him on the destruction part of the world because he saw it. He saw how wicked man was. And he's going, I agree with you. Because the Bible tells us that Noah was a righteous man. And he saw the wickedness. So it's like, I concur. Destroy them all. And the fact that this ark would be made of gopher wood was more of an inside joke between Noah's sons. Because Noah kept on telling them, go for wood. Go for wood. Go, go for wood. Dude, I got a thumbs down on that one. What the heck? Actually, go for wood is thought to be a type of cypress wood that was a pretty hard and durable kind of wood. Good for building, especially arcs. <laughs> you see, the, the Bible never tells us that Moses, or that Moses, that Noah, that it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. We, we, we get that number from, from the, the, the warning that he gave them that he would give them 120 years. But it never tells us that it, he, he spent that much time. But it does, we do know that, that in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says that there was a divine long-suffering waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So there was some time that took place for this ark, this massive boat to be built. But we don't know exactly how long it took. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it does tell us that he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was working while he waited, while he prepared, while he built the ark. He was getting the word out that the destruction was coming. So however long it took him to build this ark and for the rains to come, Noah waited and worked in faith trusting that God had revealed to him this catastrophe, this destruction that was coming, and he acted on it. And I'm sure that there was plenty of ridicule to go around in that time frame. Maybe even from his sons going, Dad, why? Why do we do it? Just go for more wood. Just go for wood. (laughs) Not understanding what he knew. However long it took, He was moved by godly fear, it says. Because he believed and he received what God had revealed to him. And he was obedient to it. It is believed that there was billions of people living on the earth at that time. When the floods came. Again, if people are living to be 900 years, how many kids can you have? To populate the earth. And yet only eight souls were saved, it tells us. 
Noah moved with godly fear. And he and his household stepped into the ark when God told them it's time. That took faith. After all these years, God says, hey, now it's time to go into the ark. And they believed God and they walked into the ark. His faith saved him because he trusted God. And those who didn't believe, those who didn't put their trust in God, after all the preaching that Noah did, were condemned to judgment. And and, and there was no one else to blame but themselves because God gave them time. In Genesis 6, 22, it says, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded, all that he commanded him, so he did. I'm sure there was times where it wasn't easy for him to continue, but he continued. He, he, he stayed focused on what God had revealed to him, and he wasn't backing down. He believed what he could not see, and he acted on it. And it says in Genesis 7:16, and God and the Lord shut him in. When they stepped in, it was God who closed the door and and protected them. Verse 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the Amplified, that last part, says, To those who, who diligently seek him out. The Bible tells us in the last part of Romans 14.23 For whatever is not of faith is sin. There's only one way to please God and that is through faith. That is through trusting in Him. There's no other way. If, if you come like, like Cain did in your own strength and what you can produce, it will be rejected. The only way that we can please God is through faith. Not that he's mean. Not that he's a killjoy in what you produce. He just knows what sin has done to man. And he wants to save us from sin and from ourselves. That's how good he is. I don't know why he is so good to us, but he is. And he desires to reward those who diligently seek him. Again, why would you want to reward us, Lord? But he does. And maybe there's some of you here this morning who have never put your trust in Him. You've been trying to do it on your own. You've been coming to God your own way. Never works. (laughs) When people say, oh, I worship God my own way, it's like, ah, geez, uh, you don't understand what the Scriptures say. Because there's only one way, and that is through the blood. And if you've been coming in your own strength, you've been getting shot down all the time. Don't, don't fool yourself. God does not let you worship Him your way. There's only one way to worship Him, and that's through Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team, wherever they're at, if they can make their way up. You, Christians, start praying. If that's you, if you've been coming to Jesus, or thinking that you've come to Jesus your own way, you've been fooled. And this morning, you need to accept Jesus through faith through His blood, because He came and He died for you. And I just want to ask that if you're here this morning 
and you've never asked Jesus into your life, I just want you to raise your hands because I just want to pray for you. I just want to lead you in a short little prayer. And that prayer is not what's going to save you. That, that Your heart is what will save you. So if that's you this morning, anybody? Amen. Anybody else? just want to lead you in a short little prayer. You can join them if you want. It's up to you. Father in heaven, I ask that you would forgive me. That you would make me a new person. By faith, I trust that your son died for my sins. That anything I've ever offered to you has been rejected. And so I believe that your son died for my sins and is now, right now, making me a new person. I thank you for your forgiveness. I accept it by faith. And I want to walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Hey, let's close in prayer. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, again, Lord, we want to thank you for our brother, Lord God, who has just turned his life over to you, Lord. I pray that, God, he would walk steady with you to trust you, Lord, for his life. But I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray for, for all these guys who have committed their lives to you, Lord. God, I pray that, God, you would just remind them of what faith looks like when they worship, of what it means to walk in faith, Lord. And, Father, even as we have to wait and work in our faith, Lord God, that you would give us the patience to look forward and not draw back, but that we would desire just more of you, in our lives, Lord. Help us to walk closer to you, Lord, each and every day. I pray your blessing upon our, our brothers and sisters, Lord. We thank you for your love and for your goodness. Blessed be your name, for you are worthy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God